buddy Tyler Smith here with another more than one lesson mini-sode. So uh, a couple of things. Number one, uh, I apologize that this is a little bit late. What happened was uh, I had a mini-sode all ready to post earlier today, and it turns out that the file is corrupted, and so I'm going to have to actually re-record it, but uh, I would need one of my co-hosts for that. So uh, so yeah, I decided to put together this uh, mini-sode that I've been thinking about for a while, and I thought might as well do it now. Okay, so what is it? Now, this is uh, this is going to be rough. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, so recently I was thinking about um, the way my fellow conservatives approach art. Uh, it is something that I'm frequently frustrated about, uh, as many of you know, because I've been pretty vocal about it. So I thought like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can recommend some movies uh, for my fellow conservatives that might get them to look at movies in a different way. Uh, and then I thought, wait, uh, maybe I can go bigger than this. Um, because I remember Roger Ebert said that film is a machine that generates empathy. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I were to recommend movies to both liberals and conservatives that might, not that it would necessarily change their mind, but get them to see the other side maybe a little bit more, um, get them to empathize with somebody with a, a different viewpoint. So here's what I have. I have five movies uh, for liberals, five movies for conservatives, and then five movies for both. Um, if you are a liberal or conservative, you may wind up uh, being frustrated by this. You may think that I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not representing your views well enough, which is understandable, especially because I lean more conservative. And so if you are a political liberal, um, it's entirely possible that you will, uh, uh, be frustrated with, with how I talk about uh, views that are not mine. So uh, I am going to try and be as fair as I can be, understanding, of course, that I do have a bias as everybody does. And there are a lot of reasons why I think Alien is wonderful. Uh, I think the the production design uh, by, among others, H.R. Uh, Giger and the 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 patience with which Ridley Scott tells the story is just something that I absolutely adore. Uh, but what makes it a little bit different, um, although not now, because plenty of science fiction movies now have adopted this attitude, is it introduces us to the company uh, and the network. And I don't remember if it ever specifically says Whalen Utani, but uh, since then that has become uh, that is the name of of the company. And so. Uh, you know, early on in the film, we do get people talking about the company and, and that you do what they tell you to do and all that kind of thing. Uh, but as things go along and, uh, spoilers, by the way, if you haven't seen alien, just a heads up on that, uh, there is, it is revealed that one of the, uh, one of the crew members of the Nostromo is actually, uh, uh, I would say he's, he's an employee of the company, but it's not even that he is literally an Android. Um, and he's been sent there to monitor, not merely monitor things, because essentially the Nostromo has been uh, sent off course to encounter and 
pick up, for lack of a better word, the alien, uh, even though it was very, the company knew it was going to be very dangerous. And Ash, the android, he was there to make sure that everything went along. And as the science officer, he has a fair amount of uh, authority. And so he's the one that is constantly saying like, no, 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 don't touch it. You know, when people want to kill the alien, he says, no, no, don't touch it. And people just listen to him because, hey, he's the science officer. They don't know that he is a robot sent there by the company to ensure uh, the gathering of this specimen. And it is suggested that uh, that the company wants this for their bioweapons division and that ultimately they don't care about the crew members of the Nostromo. Uh, crew expendable is a thing that it says. Uh, the only thing that matters is money. The only thing that matters is how much they could make in their bioweapons division, which, by the way, should tell you a lot about the company, that it has not merely a weapons division, it has a bioweapons division. That is terrifying. Um, so when... I would say that when when liberals, uh, I feel so bad saying conservatives and liberals, I apologize, but this is just, as a shorthand, this is what it's going to have to be. When they talk about corporations and when they talk about companies and they worry about crony capitalism and that sort of thing, uh, this is the kind of thing they're worried about. They're worried about uh, a company that has so much power that uh, that acquisition is ultimately how it defines itself um, and just getting bigger and bigger. And as we see throughout the entire Alien series, the company just has, it seems to own the entire galaxy. And that's something that, that I think, I don't think it necessarily originated with Alien, but it certainly personified it really well in the character of Ash and then the computer mother and then that, that simple phrase, crew expendable. Um, so I just wanted to, to point that out that like watch any number of science fiction movies, uh, the work of Paul Verhoeven, you could watch Blade Runner, uh, you could watch, uh, well, I guess I just said Paul Verhoeven, I was going to say Robocop. Um, uh, Snowpiercer is another example. There are a lot of science fiction movies, certainly since Alien, that have made it clear that uh, corporations are going to someday run everything and they are profit motivated. Uh, there's no real desire for uh, altruism. And I'm very much a free market person. I think that, uh, that you know, the best way to, you know, the best way to catch a thief is to set a thief. And so I think that, you know, there's a competition is a good thing, but at the same time, look at Google. Now I'm not saying that Google will become Whalen Yutani, but look at how much power Google has. And it's a private company. Um, and the more power it ha the more power it gets, the more it wants, and then the more it gets. And so, uh, when liberals are worried about companies, uh, that are not actually, uh, accountable to anybody except the consumer. But even then, after a while, the consumer might not have any choice in what companies it can, uh, it can talk to, not talk to, that it can uh, uh, buy things from. So that, that is a problem. That is something that, uh, that liberals tend to, to worry about. Um, it is obviously taken to an extreme, but such is the nature of science fiction, which brings me to the next film. It is Terry Gilliam's Brazil. So this is a, a film that I want liberals to watch. Uh, whenever conservatives talk about, uh, 
regulation and bureaucracy and the idea of just having to jump through so many hoops so that the like the government is so powerful that it dictates everything you do and you can't do anything without the government's permission this is what they're talking about uh you know i'm certainly not the first one to say that brazil is very similar to george orwell's 1984 except it's very funny it is darkly funny but it is funny nonetheless so there's some beautiful art direction going on there as well and it's about this guy who just wants he's a dreamer in a very gray very organized society and yes he does work for a company but everything is under the the everything is under the state everything is responsible uh to the state and so uh and some there's a lot of humor that comes out of that the idea of oh, here is your receipt and here's my receipt for your receipt. And so just the sheer amount of paperwork and how banal it can be, uh, there's that. But it also, it talks about the idea that when when the government, which by the way, has an army behind it, when it runs everything, uh, then the individual can get lost because ultimately it's about making sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so any individual who might want to do something different, uh, is a possible threat. And so, you know, conservatism is very much about individuality, you know, or at least uh, I would say American conservatism is about that, whether, whether or not it always, uh, succeeds in that is something different, but that is the idea. And so, uh, just as alien is, uh, the idea of corporations just going out of control taken to an extreme. So Brazil is that as well. So there are our science fiction movies. So check them out. All right. Now moving on to, uh, a different category here. So conservatives, you should go watch Alan Parker's Mississippi be burning uh, starring Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe this is a very interesting film it's based on a true story and it is about uh, a small town in Missouri where uh, three in the 1960s where uh, three um, civil rights activists are killed by the Ku Klux Klan now, of course, uh, I did not think when putting this together uh, a while ago that the Ku Klux Klan was going to be quite as uh, visible in 2017 as it was in the 1960s, but here we are. Um, and that's actually a big part of it. Uh, the film ultimately, like I said, based on a true story, and it ultimately comes down to the Klan runs everything in this small town. So there's not going to be any justice for these guys because the the Klan owns uh, the local law enforcement. And so, you know, when you're a conservative, as I am, you believe that that getting as close to the individual is is a good thing. That means putting all the power in the hands of, you know, local government. It could be the town, it could be the district uh, or the state. Uh, and that the closer the the closer you get to the individual, the the more representation that individual will have. But what do you do when when the local government is very much uh, about oppressing certain individuals? And so here we have Gene Hagman and Willem Dafoe as FBI agents, and it ultimately turns into the Klan versus the FBI. And so it's ultimately the the federal government versus a small town that is that runs everything and it would be very difficult to watch this movie and side with uh the clan members because there's not any justice in that town um 
and only when the FBI come into into town and really commit to fighting this uh, does anything really get done. And so, you know, conservatives, it's something that we need to think about uh, that uh, sometimes local governments and sometimes the super small government, it can fail individuals and it can definitely fail the marginalized. Um, so, uh, so that's for conservatives. For liberals, this is a bit of a different type of film. It is directed by Eli Craig and it's called Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, a very strange film. It is a, a, a horror comedy, much more comedy than horror, but it is quite grisly at times. And it is, uh, it is about these two well-meaning, uh, good-natured Southerners, Tucker and Dale, and they they are, are going out to their summer home, which is this dilapidated cabin, but they're going to, they're going to fix it up and they're going to have a great time fishing and hunting and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then you, you have all these college kids come into town and they see, uh, Tucker and Dale and they see these rednecks who just are not very articulate and they make assumptions about them and they think like oh my gosh these guys are going to kill us they're very dangerous you cannot trust people like this um, only to and then and then circumstances keep happening that the college kids keep dying but not at the hands of Tucker and Dale um, it is at their own hands and uh, and so certain of the college kids get more and more aggressive towards Tucker and Dale and it's you know somewhat understandable because it, the the circumstances are so bizarre that it does look like Tucker and Dale did murder these these kids but they did not and so it's a film very much about um, uh, stereotypes and you know everybody can can look at that but uh there is and i'm i'm no stranger to it myself uh there is an attitude about the south and sometimes about the midwest uh where it is considered by many flyover country where it's people who uh are not super smart and certainly not educated and that uh, you know we've seen stuff like wrong turn and the texas chainsaw massacre just these uh and and then stuff like deliverance just these rural people who just uh, do things their own way and they're not accountable to the rest of us um and many of us probably take the attitude of those college kids uh, who are, yes, responding to some very odd circumstances, but from the word go, the minute they see these guys, they, they judge them uh, based on uh, perhaps based on history, stuff like Mississippi burning, as I mentioned, but, uh, based on other horror movies. And it just talks about the idea of giving people the benefit of the doubt and not, uh, not prejudging them. And, you know, we live uh, in a time when there are a lot of people that uh, voted for Donald Trump and, um, and I'm not one of them, but I, there is an assumption about people that, that voted for him, that they are racists. And, you know, because they voted for this guy that is, in my opinion, a bad person, that they must be that themselves, as opposed to a getting behind a certain platform or whatever it is. And so I would say it never hurts to try to get to know somebody and maybe the person you are most likely to judge, that's the person you most need to, to talk to. So putting that out there. Okay. Next up, uh, we're going to talk about immigration, kind of. Um, there is a film by Robert M. Young. It's a lesser known film called uh, Alambrista. And it is about a, it's, it's from the, I forget if it's, if it's the seventies or eighties, like I said, it's a lesser known film, but it was released on the Criterion Collection. And it is about a, a young, um, Mexican 
uh, undocumented worker and he comes into the United States trying to make a better life for himself. And it is very difficult. And he, uh, he just goes from one bad situation to the next, doing anything he can to try to get a little bit of money for himself so he can send it back to his family. Um, and it's, it's terrible. And he, he and his other workers are very, uh, they're very exploited by bosses. And the thing is this, um, I tend to have a fairly, uh, conservative view on, uh, illegal immigration, not legal immigration, but illegal immigration. But at the same time, I think it's very important, um, for my fellow conservatives and myself that as we talk about this issue, it's very easy for us to talk about the issue and not the people. Um, I think you can still have certain attitudes, uh, and certain, uh, philosophies, but as we do, we often get very dismissive. And I think we need to recognize that, the people that we, that yes, obviously there are people that come into the country that are bad people. They take advantage of, of, you know, maybe some lax immigration or, uh, you know, lax enforcement or something like that. And they come in and they are bad people, but I'd say for the most part, it is good people who just want a new opportunity and America is the land of opportunity. And so I think we need to approach it that way and at least have a more humane attitude towards these people. Uh, and maybe that will inform some of our policies, uh, not, not to necessarily just give to give into everything, but to, uh, at least, uh, be more, I don't know. There's definitely a stereotype about conservatives that we just don't care about the poor. We don't care about, um, we don't care about, uh, non-Americans. And I think that at least from an optics, optics standpoint, I think that's probably true, but I'd say, uh, check out Alan Brista and it will just remind you that these are people that we are talking about. Um, okay. So then I will also recommend a movie basically to everybody, but in this case, I'll talk about it in regards to, uh, to, uh, our liberal listeners, uh, RW Fassbender's Ali fear eats the soul. Uh, it's a marvelous film that can be analyzed on a number of levels. It is about this young, uh, Moroccan guy, uh, immigrant in Germany who doesn't have a whole lot of friends and just feels like an outcast. And then it's about this lonely older German woman and the two develop a romantic relationship. And there's a, a great uh, deal of age disparity. And it's about the neighborhood that looks at them and says like, Oh, this is inappropriate on a number of levels. Number one, the people seem to be pretty uh, prejudiced against uh, Moroccans. Um, but also there's just look at how, look at how old she is and look at how young he is. Like, what is this all about? He's just taking advantage of her, uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, so yes, it is about prejudice, but there's, there's something in there that there's something in this that I really like, uh, that seems almost like a, a deus ex machina. It seems like something outside of the situation, uh, comes in to make the people around them in their neighborhood change their minds. But ultimately these, this couple, they leave the neighborhood for a while to just kind of get away from everything. And when they come back, they find that they are welcomed a little bit more. Um, and people are a little bit more tolerant and more accepting. And why is that? Well, it's because they, both this, this older woman and the, the Moroccan are, uh, they're good customers. They are good. They are good to have around the neighborhood. Um, and in the end, 
and I'm sorry to use the term self-interest um, because so many people take that as selfish, but everybody has a self-interest and it is a different thing. But uh, the self-interest of these businesses and the, and their neighbors uh, outweighs their prejudice. And so uh, it's, you know, when people talk about the marketplace of ideas, they're talking about a free marketplace of ideas. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I'm necessarily somebody who says, oh, the market will fix everything. Um, because I do think that there needs to be some level of regulation, but we also do need to recognize as much as we might not like it, that, uh, people do have their own interests at heart, the interests of them and their family and their business and their neighborhood and all of that. And that, uh, often that will supersede certain assumptions that they have about people, uh, and about the world. And we can try to, uh, condemn that. We can try try to say like, no, people shouldn't be that way. They should think in terms of larger things. And that's true. But at the same time, that is, uh, it can be, it can be a good thing. And so it's a film that could be seen as very cynical, but I actually view it as very encouraging that human nature, the same human nature that caused people to, uh, uh, judge this, uh, unlikely couple is the same human nature that will come to bring them back around on them. So, an odd film uh, to be talking about in this regard. But we will move on to uh, depictions of the poor. Uh, so we're going to talk about, this is for conservatives, we're going to be talking about uh, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, it is a, an Italian neorealist film. It is probably the seminal Italian neorealist film. And it is uh, it takes place in Italy post-World War II when it is in economic shambles. And... DeSica decided to cast the film with non-actors, uh, so they weren't stars. These are just regular people playing regular people, and on um, you know that can always be a little bit dangerous because you do still need actors to be able to replicate certain emotions. But it would appear that at the time in Italy. Uh, people didn't have a problem playing these emotions because they were feeling them all the time, feelings of despair and hopelessness. And it's about this, this young man who, uh, he's not a young man, but, uh, he's a, he's younger and he's a father of a young boy and he's a husband and he's been out of work for a while, but then he gets a job that requires him to have a bicycle. And so he, he essentially, uh, bikes around town and puts up posters that's it. And then one day while he's up on a ladder, putting up a poster, somebody steals his bike. And so without that, he is without a job. He is without uh, a way to, to, uh, provide for his family. And so he and his son go on a quest, uh, around the city to try to find who stole his bike and spoilers for bicycle thieves, by the way, everybody. Um, it gets to the point where they are hopeless and he decides he wants to, he's going to steal somebody else's. Uh, and he does, but he gets caught and everybody shames him. And so there's this very harrowing image of he and his son walking along as people are yelling at them and he is fighting back tears because he is frustrated at what it is he has done. But it also for the viewer, you know, for a long time, this film was called The Bicycle Thief. And I think over time, uh, people have translated it differently to mean to say bicycle thieves. And it makes a huge difference. Um, in both cases, it's, it's a, it's a, a loaded title, but bicycle thieves, it talks about the guy who stole uh, the person that stole this guy's bike. And then this guy stealing somebody else's. And it ultimately is about the way that poverty and desperation can perpetuate, uh, uh, poverty and negative, even criminal behavior. It's a film that is remarkably unjudgmental. And when this guy's bike is stolen, 
we see things from his perspective, understandably so. It's like, oh my gosh, what a sleazeball for stealing this guy's bike. But uh, then we see this guy do the same thing and it gets us to think, well, maybe the person that stole his bike is also in a bad situation. And so it's a very, uh, it's a very sad film, but also one that is remarkably human. And I absolutely love it. I think everybody should see it. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, as I mentioned, conservatives, we sometimes, you know, uh, it's not unheard of when we talk about minimum wage. You know, there are a lot of conservatives talk about burger flippers. Like, ah, it doesn't take much to flip a burger. Well, what it takes is a person. And these are people that are trying to, um, trying to earn a living. And we can argue about how, how best to earn that living, but please let's not call them burger flippers as though that is the, that is the defining thing that they are. They are people who have a job. And so like we need to be, I think, more sympathetic to the poor, as I would say the Bible says we should. Uh, flip side of that, and this this interpretation is courtesy of David Bax, uh, my friend over at Battleship Pretension. Uh, his favorite film of all time is Barton Fink, directed by the Coen brothers. And one thing that he says about it that is just I find so fascinating is that... Um, the uh, the character of Charlie Meadows, played by John Goodman, he's just this working man, he's a salesman, and Barton Fink, played by John Turturro, is very, he's a writer, he's an intellectual, and so they wind up next to each other in this hotel, and uh, Barton writes about the working man, uh, and, and the regular guy. And so he meets Charlie and he's super excited to talk to him because, oh, time to get back to my roots and talk to this guy. But he never lets Charlie get a word out. Um, and so it would appear that Barton is actually more interested in the concept of the working man and that it makes him feel better as someone who's successful. Um, but when it comes to actually talking to a working man, he's not that remarkably interested. Uh, and then David pointed this out that when it, uh, spoilers for Barton Fink, by the way, uh, when it is revealed that Charlie is more complex than we thought he was, um, and that there's, and that there's something really horrifying about him, it speaks to this idea. Again, this is David, these are David's words, but I think it holds up. I agree with it that the working man which though we say that in a singular way, we talk about, you know, we're talking about an entire group of people, an entire class of people, uh, that the working man is infinitely more complex than what we intellectuals think about them. Uh, and that yes, we're interested in them and yes, maybe we can even try to save them. But when it comes right down to it, they also are individuals and, you know, uh, to tie it into the election, you know, there are a lot of working people in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin that voted for Donald Trump. Um, and many of us are like, how could that happen? Don't they realize that he's, that Republicans are like anti-union and blah, blah, blah. Um, and what it comes right down to is like, yeah, maybe they do. And maybe he said something different that spoke very specifically to them. And yeah, I guess we could always say, ah, they're probably just racist, but that is also dismissive. Like when we talk about the working class or the poor, uh, both sides, both conservatives and liberals, I think need to do a better job of actually understanding that these are individuals and that no individual can be, uh, so thoroughly categorized, uh, and that, there are nuances to each person. 
So, okay. Uh, so that's uh, depictions of the poor and the working class. Let's move, let's move into depictions of the rich. Uh, and le- for conservatives, check out a wonderful film called Chinatown, directed by Roman Polanski. Uh, and the villain is revealed, a lot of spoilers in this episode, sorry everybody, the villain is re- revealed to be Noah Cross, played by John Huston. Noah Cross, by the way, is my vote for the best villain in film history, because what he has done is absolutely horrible, but he is so genial and so grandfatherly and kind of curmudgeonly, uh, but ultimately quite lovable, uh, played by John Huston, who acted a little bit, but was, but was primarily a director. Uh, and so there's, but he's incredibly rich and it would appear that his money, his wealth has allowed him to feel entitled to literally anything he wants. And when we come to realize exactly what that means, we, we see just an absolute decadence to him that would not be possible if not for his money and his ability to get away with that decadence is also a function of his money. Um, and there are plenty of movies about, uh, the, the way the impact that wealth and money has on people. But I, you know, I I think a good example is, is sunset Boulevard, but I do think that Noah cross, there's this attitude he has where he refuses to take responsibility, uh, for his actions. And why would he, because the, the city and the government, don't want him to take responsibility. They, uh, they absolve him, um, absolve him of any responsibility because he has so much money and he's paid them off and that kind of thing. So it's a wonderful performance and, uh, just a wonderful film all around. But I do think that, you know, conservatives were very much in favor of, Hey, if somebody, uh, is able to be wealthy, then good for them. And I agree with that. Good for them. There's nothing inherently wrong with having money, but the love of money is the root of all evil, as the Bible says. And so we need to recognize that in ourselves, but also in our larger philosophy that uh, we should try to encourage that somebody be responsible with their money and view uh, wealth as perhaps a means to an end, but also, uh, I don't know, it's, I have a very specific opinion about about wealth that might frustrate certain conservatives, but I think it would also frustrate liberals. Um, it's interesting. I once read an article in uh, a National Review that was talking about uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is this wit- this rich guy who is a, a complete jerk, uh, who finally comes around, and they say that his his crime is not necessarily being rich. His crime is that he is a miser, that he does not spend his money, that he keeps it to himself because that's how he defines himself. However, if he were to, like even he even lives in a pretty much empty house that is not well heated because he doesn't want to spend money on the heat. Uh, And so he actually makes himself miserable because to him, he just wants to have money. But there's no real use in having money unless you use it to buy things, as uh, Charles Foster Kane says. Um, But as you buy things, yes, it will help the economy. And so the idea, so I think it's safe to say that uh, Ebenezer Scrooge loves money. It's not merely that he has money, it's that he loves having money and the concept of money. And I think uh, as Christians, we need to uh, approach wealth in a very specific way where there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but it can, uh, if our priorities are, are off, it can be, uh, very, uh, I don't know. 
destructive, I guess. That sounds too dramatic, but that's what I'll say. Uh, On the flip side, uh, liberals, you can check out uh, all three films in the Dark Knight series Um, because those are films. It's it's not at all uncommon to hear people say that uh, Christopher Nolan and his attitudes seem to be particularly conservative, and I'd say that's about right. Um, And so if we see in Chinatown, we see a millionaire who takes no responsibility in the dark Knight series. We see a millionaire who takes absolute responsibility for, uh, for what he has now. Yes. I recognize there's a vigilante quality as well that I don't think we, we can necessarily get behind, but, uh, but what, you know, because in the end we need to fight for, uh, institutional justice, not necessarily vigilante justice, but, uh, but Bruce Wayne recognizes that he has a rare opportunity that he has, he's been given all this money and yes, I get, he could invest it like his father has. And that's, that's not bad. He does that too, but he has a responsibility to the people who can't defend themselves. Uh, and it is his money that, uh, that allows him to do that. There's that line in the new justice league movie, which will likely be terrible, but I like this line where, uh, the flash is asking Bruce Wayne, what's your superpower? And he simply says, I'm rich. And it's kind of funny, but that can be a superpower, especially if you do it right. Uh, or you could do it wrong, like Lex Luthor or like Noah Cross or any number of other characters. And so, uh, and then especially in the dark Knight rises, there is, uh, the Selena Kyle character, uh, has very specific ideas about the rich and Bruce tries to, um, convince her that no, 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 the, all rich people aren't this way. Some of us do try to, uh, to contribute to the, the larger community. And then he decides that that he needs to continue doing that. Uh, and then ultimately once again, spoilers, uh, makes the ultimate sacrifice, or at least he does until, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan chickens out the last minute. Anyway, so those are the five movies for conservatives and five movies for liberals. Now, obviously, everybody should see all of these movies. They're very good. And yes, many of them are more complex than to simply say, ah, liberals, you should see this, or oh, conservatives, you should watch this. It's not that. Uh, art is more complex, but I thought uh, this would be an interesting exercise, and I'm sure people are frustrated by stuff that I've said, in which case, sorry about that. What are you going to do? Uh, what I will also recommend, so there, here are five movies that I will recommend uh, for everybody because they can, they, they contain themes that I think everyone will appreciate. The first is Norman Jewison's in the heat of the night, which, uh, won best picture 1967, 68 shoot. Now I don't remember. It's one of those. Anyway, um, it stars Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger, and it is about this uh, big city, I think Philadelphia, I don't remember, it might be Pittsburgh, uh, cop played by Sidney uh, Poitier, and he is in a small southern town, and a man has been killed, and Sidney Poitier is the first suspect because he's black, but it is quickly established that he is a cop, and he actually starts helping them with the case, and he is partnered with the local police chief played by uh, Rod Steiger. And, you know, Sidney Poitier has to fight a lot of uh, a lot of racism, but it's odd because you actually see that Bill Gillespie, the character that Rod Steiger plays, he actually is not, su- he's, he is just like anybody else, he has racial prejudice, but compared to like some of the other people in the town, he's uh, positively progressive. Um, 
But what's interesting is as these guys work closer together, they both judge each other very quickly. But as they work closer together, they, they come to an understanding and they seem to become actual friends, even though neither of them, and certainly Gillespie is not quite where he could be. Um, but it, it's a film that says like any little bit of progress is good and uh, a big step towards any kind of progress is to look at each other as individuals first. Uh, next up is the aforementioned Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles. And uh, you've probably seen the film already, but it's about Charles Foster Kane, who uh, this is a guy who was defined by his wealth. There's a lot to talk about with Citizen Kane, so I'll be uh, kind of glossing over some things. Um, but uh, it's about this guy who has a great deal of wealth, and that becomes how he defines himself. He still wants to relate to other people, but he only relates to them in terms of money. Um, that's how he convinces people to love him, um, or at least tries to. Uh, so, you know, along the same lines as Chinatown, um, I would say that we need to recognize that money does not is not everything, and in a capitalist society, uh, that is something that we tend to think about. Uh, but I will say that along the lines of Barton Fink. Uh, Charles Foster King, uh, he considers himself uh, a fairly liberal guy, um, and he's going to fight for the right of the working people. That seems to be how he uh, is able to sleep at night on, in his very nice bed in his giant mansion. Um, but there's there's a moment when uh, his friend, Jedediah Leland, who's kind of the conscience of the film, uh, he says, you know, those uh, the working man is you know, more complex than you think. And there'll come a moment when he expects something as his right, not as your gift. And it speaks to a certain complex that I think people have, which is I will come and I will save these people. I will save the working man, but not unlike Barton Fink's like, yeah, but they, first off, they are comprised of individuals, but also just because you want to give people a gift doesn't mean that they're going to be so grateful that they give you anything you want or that they absolve you of, of certain uh, crimes and attitudes that you might have. So there's a lot in Citizen Kane that I really love. Well, sorry, I love everything in it. It's my second favorite film of all time. Uh, next up is Dr. Strangelove, which I absolutely adore. It is a, a, a comedy about war, and it is very much about the human limitations uh, and that those really need, be need to be taken into account when talking about war, uh, especially nuclear war, that we are flawed, broken people, and we can be petty and we can be ignorant. Or some of us can have an absolutely terrible agenda. So uh, there's that. But then, uh, so there are definitely hawks in the world of Dr. Strangelove. Um, but there are also characters like the president who's so mealy-mouthed that he uh, he's completely... Uh, inconsequential. And I think in war, you also do need people who are willing to take a principled stand uh, in, you know, uh, in service of peace. But also there are times when, uh, when people are going to be aggressors and you need, uh, you will need people that will look hawkish, but in the end they're, they're in favor of defending uh, the innocent. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of people that come out looking silly. In fact, all of humanity for the most part, but uh, that's, kind of the brilliance of Dr. Strangelove is it takes this very serious thing and makes it uh, hilarious. Uh, next up is The Last Temptation of Christ, directed by Martin Scorsese, a film that um, 
approaches Jesus uh, in a very different way. I know a lot of more conservative Christians uh, hate this film and they think that it's blasphemous. Um, but I would say that a lot of what Jesus says and people on both sides tend to uh, use Jesus for subsidizing their own uh, or validating, pardon me, validating their own political philosophy. And the thing about Jesus is that uh, his his uh, beliefs and his actions uh, will eventually bother everybody. Um, and neither side uh, has a monopoly on on christian teaching and so but on one hand we have a guy who cares very much for the poor and will do everything he can to fight against um uh discrimination and oppression but in the end it is also a film that suggests that jesus was in fact the son of god uh and that that actually means something uh if jesus is in fact who he said he was then we have a responsibility to respond a certain way or at least respond in any way uh what we can't do is say oh he was just a great teacher and who cares? Uh, this is a film that says, no, he wasn't a great teacher. Uh, he actually was able, uh, to perform miracles and that his death on the cross. And while it does end with him dying, the, the triumphant note. And then what we've seen previously suggests that this is the Jesus of the Bible and that he will rise again in three days. So, uh, so that's something that I think everybody should see. And then lastly is a wonderful movie called the life and death of Colonel Blimp directed officially by Michael Powell, unofficially by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, who is his producing partner. Uh, and so I think people in retrospect see Michael Powell as the definitive director of his films, but he was always with Emmerich Pressburger. They wrote their films together. They kind of co-produced. It's very much like the Coen brothers. For a long time, one was cited as the director, but after a while they just said, okay, it's both of us, and we all knew that anyway. Uh, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp is a, uh, like I said, it's it's also a wonderful film that is about war, and it is also about uh, adapting um to new circumstances while also not judging the generation that comes before. Um, I've heard so many people talk about how, oh, if only this this older generation, people that are currently in their 80s, maybe even in their 70s, oh, if only they would just die off, then we could finally have progress. Well, an interesting theme of this episode or mini-sode seems to be that uh, we need to look at people as individuals. And so we're talking about, oh, this entire group of people need to just die off so we can all move forward. And in doing so, we fail to recognize first the value of each individual, uh, but also the contribution of individuals and an entire generation. And so this is a film that features uh, an older colonel who is seen as kind of silly and kind of irrelevant um, in some of his views, but then the film goes back and sees him as a uh, as a young man and a fiery upstart, and you see how he got where he is. Uh, and so, yes, it is about war, um, but I think it uses war to talk about larger things, about culture and the way culture looks on its past and looks towards its future, because it doesn't simply say, oh, this old man, like you need to respect him. It also says that, yeah, he did kind of age out of relevance and that is unfortunate, but that doesn't mean that he is less valuable as a human being. So, uh, so I think there's, there's something there that I, that I appreciate a great deal. So, uh, okay. 
I'm sure that I have uh, been very reductive of people's uh, philosophies, and I'm sure that uh, some people are very angry and want to comment in the comment section. Uh, if you do, please uh, be respectful because I tried to be. Um, even if I wasn't always. So uh, please try to be respectful uh, of each other. And let's say of me, uh, not that I, not that you need to respect me, but uh, I'm in a bit of a fragile state these days. And uh, you can disagree, but I, I really don't want any dismissal. Uh, that would be great. So uh, that's a plea from me to you. Uh, but hopefully this, and hopefully if nothing else, you get some good movie recommendations out of this mini-sode. And uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. Uh, hopefully we will have uh, some more Best of Pictures mini-sodes for you. Uh, but I think that's it. Uh, in the meantime, thank you everybody for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.